Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. It's so great to be sharing with you this morning. This is the second to last Sunday that we're going to be in this room. And uh, so excited. You know, we were there Wednesday night at the building, and I think Amaya was the one who actually said, let's go pray over the youth room. So we got in there and pray, and I was just seeing the encounters that were pregnant in that room in the years to come, a room filled with... With, that's pregnant with encounter, pregnant with moves. I was just looking at the floor and I'm just thinking, I can't wait to see this floor drenched in tears. I can't wait to see us on our faces here. That, that, that building is pregnant for a move. And the word I want to speak today, it's a, it's a family word. It's for us as a family. Um, but I want to talk on the house of God this morning, the house of God. What does it mean to be a house? Obviously, we are in a geographical move as a family, and there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of buzz happening. However, I believe underneath this geographic physical move, there is a spiritual move he is taking us to as a body, as a specific congregation. And uh, if anything, this morning, I want us to, yes, be excited about the physical, but don't let the physical distract us from the spirit of what's happening underneath this, all of this. Does that make sense? So uh, I want to talk about that this morning, the, the, the tabernacle, what Jesus is doing. And my, my heart is to really put a language and articulation to what I feel the Lord is calling us, Dwell Church, as a house to be. I want to put language to our identity of that word, D-W-E-L-L. What does it mean to dwell? <laughs> what does it mean to be a house that dwells? There's a vast difference between the visitation of the Lord and the habitation of the Lord. And I am truly convinced that the Lord in this hour is raising up houses all over this nation there are emerging houses who are marked by this one thing. God lives there. God lives there. I, I've been in rooms before where you walk away and all you can say is, the Lord was there. And how dwell, I, I truly believe, is there's a prophetic mandate to be a unique expression of a habitation for the Lord Jesus in the days to come. In the days to come. So I, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago on Family Worship Sunday, but there's this pastor I heard teaching, and he pastors this revival church kind of like ours. And he was talking to this general in the faith, and this general in the faith uh, was speaking to him about the house of God, how your house is, is marked to be a hosting place for the presence of Jesus. It, it's not meant, it is meant to host people, but before we host people, we want to host him. And he was saying that I see the arrow of the Lord pulled back and it's pointed towards different houses, specific houses all over the earth. And how many know when you pull an arrow back, all this tension is built up? How many of you know tension has been building up the last couple of years? All this tension has been building up. And he said something so beautiful. He said, the question is not, will God hit his target? 
The question is, will the church put themselves in a position to be hit by the target of the Lord's glory? Will we pay the price? There is a, I'm not gonna ever say it's a copy paste thing, but there's a recipe for revival. If you look through history, there are specific ingredients that truly mark that this is a house of God. You look at Azusa, all night prayer meetings. You look at a, the Welsh revival, groaning prayers, travail prayers. Revival always has tongues and travail. <laughs> tongues and travail, that's, that's really what precedes. Tears, tongues, and travail is what precedes a move of God. And I, I believe the Lord is transitioning his church from a place of visitation to a place of habitation. And the day will come where the greatest anthem out of every house across America will be this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The cry in every business, the cry in every family, the cry in every church will be one cry that we will be able to utter. It's this, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's our mandate, to be a house that hosts him. And I, I, I grew up in ministry my entire life. I'm not a PK, but I'm very close to one. My mom is here. She was the administrator at our church my whole life. And it was a beautiful, beautiful church. But the, the hour I really grew up in, went to a lot of conferences, went to a lot of beautiful leadership events. And it really felt like the main theme was how do we get people in a room? How do we grow and get people in a room, get seats filled? And it's a beautiful pursuit. It's a holy one, but I wanna suggest there is a higher pursuit than that. And I believe the Lord is changing the language. The, the question is going from how do we get people in a room to how do we get Jesus in a room? <laughs> how do we get you in the room? We will plan our services. We will plan according to the comfortability of you, Lord. What do you want? What do you desire? We cannot treat his presence as common. We cannot treat Jesus as common. We illustrate to heaven what we value by what we are willing to pay a price for. We communicate a message to heaven that Jesus, you are all we need. We do not treat you as common. We do not treat you as common. And I believe the Lord is really retraining us as the bride how to gather in his name. It sounds so elementary. It's like, of course we gather in the name of Jesus. However, many beautiful, well-meaning believers gather not in the name of Jesus. They gather in the name of a gifting. They gather in the name of a personality. They gather in the name of a denomination. But the Lord is regathering his people to gather in his name. <laughs> where two or more are gathered, he is there. If I gather in the name of a person, guess what? That doesn't meet the requirement for the Lord being there, but if I gather in his name, the name of Jesus, he rests upon our, us as a people. This is elementary, this is going back to children's church, but we need to go back to the simplicity. The simplicity of the gospel. CBN, they did this study recently, this, uh, what do you call it, a poll. I guess, and uh, it's very devastating. The poll came out and it said 60% of Christians, not non-believers, but believers, 60% of believers ages 18 through 30 believe 
Jesus is not the only way to heaven. This is happening in our nation. 60%, not 16, 60. More than half of my generation, the millennials, believe that there is another name to gain salvation from. At some point throughout the decades, we've moved the goalpost. We've made it more convenient. We've made it more comfortable. We've moved the ancient boundary of his presence. In Proverbs, it says, don't touch the ancient boundaries. Don't touch the thing that got you there. He doesn't change for anybody. The, the main thing is the main thing. It's him. What other name could bring us salvation? What other name could make us new? What other name? If, if there was another way for salvation, then that would make God a cruel father for asking his son to endure such a brutal death. Jesus is the only way. I just wanna give you that to, to let you know what we're up against, because here in our walls, we know Jesus is the one thing, but this is what's happening in the earth right now. And dwell will be a beacon because when darkness increases, so does the light of the world increase on the earth. And this is the mandate on this house to live with a stronger and stronger conviction of the person of Jesus. This is it, his name. Even the scripture, the Old Testament scripture is built on Jesus. You, you can see Jesus throughout the entire Old Testament. Did you know this? This is really interesting. I, I found this out, but in Genesis 5, Genesis 5 alone, it speaks on the genealogies from Adam to Noah. If you take the literal Hebrew translations of the genealogies from Adam to Noah, you get the entire gospel of Jesus. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. And then so on it goes Sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, declaring that his death will bring the despairing rest. Methuselah means his death will bring. Noah means rest. Adam is man, man appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, declaring that his death will bring the despairing rest. Every single scripture in the Bible points to one thing. It points to him. It's built on him. Come on, just give him a shout. Jesus, we thank you. Everything is built on you. This thing is for you. You are the chief cornerstone. And I, I believe for too long, we have, we have learned to wear Saul's armor to fight the battles that culture is fighting. And, and I want to suggest we cannot wear the world's armor to fight the giants facing the world. We need the smooth stones. The stone speaks of the rock, which the rock is Jesus Christ. We need to find those smooth stones as David did. He's removing the armor of Saul to fight these giants that we're up against in culture. We can't fight these giants wearing Saul's armor. We can't fight. We can't build the way the world builds anymore. We have to build through presence. It's the stones the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the best church planter there is. He's the best builder of his own house. If you wanna know what kind of house Jesus wants, just ask him. He's really good at building his house, really good at it. Psalms 127, 
says, unless the Lord builds the house, the labors will labor in vain. And in the hour to come, there will be one distinguishing mark that, that begs the question of, of what, how do you know which houses are built by him and which are built on the schemes of man? And I believe it's this one question is, is he there? <laughs> is he there? You will find the Lord in the Lord's house. That's the one distinguishing mark in the days ahead. Is God there? Does he live there? This is built on Jesus. <laughs> I love that you guys honored us today. It's beautiful. But this thing is not built on me. <laughs> it's built on Jesus. It's built on him. I remember the early days of Dwell. I don't know if you remember this, Pastor David, but I was taking you to a ministry school to speak at. And it was when I was still getting to know Pastor David. I was really nervous around him still. And uh, when I got to his house, I tried to carry his bag for him. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me. <laughs> He's like, no, I can carry my own bag. <laughs> And then I tried to open his door for him. And he's like, what are you doing? Do you, are, do you want me to drive? And I'm like, no, I was trying to open your door for you. He's like, I can, I can get my own door. And, and I love it. There's a, definitely a place for honor. We just experienced honor. There's a place for honor. It's beautiful. But I don't even know if he realized this, but in that moment, he was communicating to me a message, a nonverbal message saying, it is not built on us. What we are building here, it is not built on a man or a person or a personality. It's built on the person. It's built on the man. And he was laying that out there for me of communicating that message of it's not built on me. It's not built on us. It's him. We are building his house. I've had the great honor of being at almost every staff meeting here. And you know what? We never talk about a five-year plan here. We never talk about a 10-year plan because he is our daily plan. He is our daily bread. <laughs> we need daily bread. I, I, I love the 10-year and five-year plans. Sometimes we don't even know what we're doing six months down the road, but we know this. We need him in the room. We need him. If he doesn't come, we don't even need to plan a sermon series. We need him in the room. If he's not there, we might as well throw in the towel. We need him. How do we get him? And much of the world would look at that and say it's foolishness. But how many know the wisdom of man is foolishness to God? And the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. <laughs> this is wisdom, building his house on Jesus. I wanna talk about John the Baptist really briefly. Um, John the Baptist, he was referred to as the last Old Testament prophet. And uh, I call the Holy Spirit heaven's wedding planner. I call John the Baptist Jesus' best man. His role was to break and prepare the way for Jesus to inhabit the earth. So we can look at his life as a blueprint of, okay, if he paved the way for Jesus to inhabit the earth, how do we build a place for Jesus to inhabit our house, our church house? So if you could go with me, John chapter one. I believe we'll have it on the screen. John chapter one, we'll start in verse six. This is the Passion Translation. It says this, then suddenly a man appeared who is sent from God, a messenger named John. For he came to be a witness to point the way to the light of life. If you wanna know what John's assignment was, it was this, to point the way to the light of life. 
and to help everyone believe. John was not the light, but he came to show who is, for he was merely a messenger to speak truth about the light. We can drop way down to verse 29. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming to be baptized and John cried out, look, there he is, God's lamb. If you want to know the prophetic heartbeat of the last day's prophets, it is this. Here is Jesus. <laughs> Come and behold Jesus. That is as simple as it was for John the Baptist's ministry. It was this. Here's Jesus. Today we think of prophets, and yes, it's true that they prophesy presidents and kings and your future. I love that dimension of the, the prophetic. However, this dimension that John is saying, he's saying, this is my ministry. This is all it is. Here's Jesus. Everyone, look at Jesus. Look at him. All eyes on Jesus. This is the mandate for the church. If you're a business owner, this is the mandate for your business, your employees. This is the mandate for us in our lives. The heartbeat of the last day's prophetic ministry is this. Here's Jesus. <laughs> Come look at him. Now, the older I get, I, I realize that I really only have one message <laughs> and it comes out in different ways, but one message and it's just this. Come look at him. Come and behold him. Look, look at his beauty and teaching people the presence of God is something that's really difficult to, to communicate. It's almost like trying to teach someone how to drink a glass of water or how to feel the wind on, on your skin. It's just something that you have to experience for yourself. This is Jesus. And um, I want to just, the rest of the time, give you three pillars that mark the house of God. Three distinct pillars that mark the house of God. As I said, there are houses marked by Jesus spread across the country that we can look at and glean from. It isn't a copy paste, but it is looking at a blueprint, a recipe for revival. Bill Johnson, uh, he shared with us when we were students that in the early days of Bethel, it was before revival broke out or anything. It was, they were in a season kind of like ours. We were contending for, we knew where the Lord was taking us. It's almost like Joshua and Caleb seeing the land and bringing back a cluster of fruit and saying, here's the fruit, let's go get it, let's go get it. It was in that, that kind of season is what I feel like we're in right now. And he flew to Argentina. I think Pastor David may have mentioned this last week. He flew to Argentina. There was this massive revival happening in Argentina. Just an incredible outpouring of the Lord. And uh, Bill said as he was, he was there just taking it all in, he realized that this massive revival was almost like a huge oak tree that has grown. It's in its full mature state. And he realized this is the same thing that we have back home, except what we have back home is an acorn. Just because this is an acorn, it doesn't make it any less of an oak tree. It's just in its beginning stages. And the Lord said, water this thing, treat it, and you'll get that oak tree in a few years. And obviously we see what Bethel is doing right now. And I wanna suggest we have a little acorn right now, Dwell Church. I wanna say it's a big acorn, but acorns are tiny. But we have an acorn right now. And we're headed towards an oak tree of glory. 
oaks of righteousness. <laughs> when Emily and I, we, went, we flew to Orlando back in April and we, we went to attend Jesus Image because we just heard about the glory that's falling there. And, and as we were there just basking all of it in, I was just thinking to myself, oh, this tastes like home. This, I, this reminds me of back home in Allen, Texas. I, this is an acorn. We have an acorn. This, this, this is familiar language. This is very familiar. You, you know what I'm talking about when you've tasted him. It's very familiar. And the Lord is uh, bringing a renaissance onto the earth of a move of God. And we're a part of that. <laughs> we're a part of that. So number one, the first thing I want to share Three pillars that mark the house of God is number one, devotion to the ark of his presence. Devotion to the ark. Let's go ahead and turn to Psalms 132. Psalms 132 is, uh, in my opinion, it's one of the most important Psalms in the Psalter, if I could say that. <laughs> this Psalm, in my opinion, is what gave King David the success he experienced on the earth. This is the reason, if you could have dumbed his entire life down, this is the one thing that drove King David in his entire existence of why the Lord put him on the earth. And the, the beautiful thing is, it's because God's dream became his dream. And I believe the Lord is looking for leaders that will become so near, so close to the heart of God that his dreams will start being imprinted on the walls of our hearts and his dreams will start becoming our dreams. We dream God dreams. So Psalms 132, this is David's secret sauce, I call it, that gave him success in his life. And uh, this is talking about his desire to build a house for the Lord, to build a resting place for the presence of God, for the ark. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago but I've come to the point in my life where it's like I've, I've tasted my assignment. I've tasted microphones. I've tasted stages. I've got to meet some of my greatest heroes, but yet they, all of that is beautiful, but it doesn't feed my soul. Only Jesus feeds my soul. Opportunity doesn't feed my soul. Jesus feeds my soul. And I came to the point where I separated that Jesus is my dream. Ministry is my assignment. <laughs> I chose ministry is not my dream. Crowds are not my dream. That's not my dream. That's, that's my assignment. That's what I'm called to. But Jesus is my dream. I want to suggest make Jesus your dream. Make all your goals. Make that your assignment. Separate your love for Jesus with his calling on your life. Jesus is our dream. And David, uh, this, this clicked with David. He learned that his presence, the house of God, was his dream. And everything else in the kingdom was his assignment. He's, he was in his most darkest season, and yet he writes this psalm, let me see your beauty. <laughs> what king, what warrior would ask that? Many would ask for, ask for success, would ask for wealth, but he said, okay, my life is crumbling right now. Give me your beauty. Give me your beauty. And that is the cry, the heartbeat of the last day's bride. When darkness rises, we just get on our knees and say, give me your beauty, Lord. Show me your beauty. Show me the beauty of the Lord. He learned that <laughs> as a shepherd. This psalm was most likely written when he was a teenager. So Solomon is actually rehearsing 
this psalm right here. And this was a vow that David made that this is long before David was gone, but Solomon, his son, the next generation is rehearsing or retelling this vow that the previous generation has made. And I wanna propose this for you, that before we can build a house for the Lord publicly, we must learn how to build a house for the Lord privately with our families. If his son was talking about this vow, this promise to build a house for the Lord, this suggests to me that David kept the word of God on his lips a lot in in the home. (laughs) He kept the word, he kept this vow fresh in his his home, in his family. And I wanna just say that we need a revival that has longevity, (laughs) that goes beyond our generation, that transcends generations. And scripture says, after Joshua's generation died out, there was a generation that rose up that did not know the Lord. And I want to suggest it's because they did not keep it on their mouths. They did not keep it in their home. He kept the word on his lips. This is just a side note, but scripture says that the word of God is active. It is impossible to live a life indulged in the word and have a stagnant life. The word of God has activity to it. There's motion. If you are feeling stale and stagnant in your walk with the Lord, get into this. This is the most active thing on the entire earth. If if you're feeling stale, get in here. The word is active. It has activity. Those who live lives in the word live lives of motion. They live lives of activity. Pastor Bill always told us, if you're feeling bored in your relationship with Jesus, check your distance between you and his word. (laughs) So Psalms 132, let's go ahead and read it. This is Solomon recounting, rehearsing David's vow. Lord, please don't forget all the hardships David had to pass through and how he promised you Jacob's mighty God saying, I will not cross the threshold of my home to sleep in my own bed. So this is his vow. I will not sleep or slumber, nor even take time to close my eyes and rest until I find a place for you to dwell, O mighty God of Jacob. I devote myself to finding a resting place for you. This is a vow that David made with the Lord when he was a teenager, a vow that said, I want the presence. I want the presence. And he kept this vow in front of him his entire life. He didn't change the subject. By the time he got to the throne as king, he said, that vow I made when I was a teenager, let's go get it. Let's go after it. Get the ark of his presence. I want God here. And Pastor David spoke on this last week about them transporting the ark of God. They merely mirrored, uh, mirrored or mimicked the way the Philistines moved it. They saw, oh, the Philistines moved it on a cart. Let's just operate the way culture operates and let's put that in what is holy on top of the way the world builds. And it didn't work. And I want to suggest that we can't build the house of God the way the world builds. They tried it. They tried to do what the Philistines did. Oh, we'll just put it on a cart. And it didn't work. Man got struck dead. It must rest on the shoulders of his people. He wants relationship. He's a relational God. Everything he does is done with relationship in mind. 
So I just wanna read this one more time together, this vow. I will not cross the threshold of my own home. I wanna read this together. Let's just read this together. I will not cross the threshold of my own home to sleep in my own bed. I will not sleep or slumber nor even take time to close my eyes and rest until I find a place for you to dwell, O mighty God of Jacob. I devote myself to finding a resting place for you. In other words, David was saying that he was, I believe it was a figure of speech saying, I will not allow my body to sleep. In other words, he's communicating to the Lord, I am more concerned and zealous for your comfortability than my own comfortability. I am more concerned with the rest of God, the resting place of God, than I am concerned with my own resting place. And we need to come to a place in Christianity where the zealousness for God's comfortability in our house becomes greater than our own zealousness for our own comfortability in the house. He discovered this, that he was willing to lay his life down and live on the altar and live in inconvenience. If you look through history, it doesn't sound pretty, but every revival throughout history is birthed through inconvenience. It's birthed through tears, travail, birth through laying yourself on the altar all over again. Inconvenience. <laughs> when we lived in Redding, California, you know, Redding, it's a beautiful place, but it is one of the most difficult cities in America to travel to. It is the most inconvenient place to travel to. It's, it's almost like easier getting to the moon than it is to Redding sometimes. There's very few flights going in and out. Very, very few. It's very inconvenient. It's honestly, I heard someone say this, it's easier to travel from DFW to London, quicker to travel from DFW to London than DFW to Redding, California. It's insane. But it's, it's interesting that the Lord placed a revival hub and he made it so inconvenient to get to where only the hungry will go. If you're really hungry, you will make that trek out there. When you get to the church, there's one entrance in, one entrance out. You gotta wait in your car for 30 minutes to sometimes to get out. But guess what? I'm not concerned with my comfortability. I'm concerned with his. I'm not there for me. I, I'm not there for me. I'm there for him. I, I was hungry for God. I wanted to pay any price for him. And Proverbs says, it's the glory of God to hide a matter or conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. This coming glory where the Lord is inviting us into as a church, it's going to require us to lay down our lives and to seek out this glory, to search it out. This might mean something different for everybody. It might mean waking up at 6 a.m. and giving yourself to the place of prayer. It might mean fasting. Whatever the Lord is asking of you, Whatever, just say, Lord, what do I need to be inconvenienced <laughs> to have this? Yeah. Verse six here, it said, first we heard that the ark was at Bethlehem. And this is just another side note. Bethlehem means house of bread. So how fitting is it that the bread of life would be birthed out of Bethlehem, the house of bread, Bethlehem. Then we found it in the forest, don't know how to say that word, so I'm not gonna try. Verse seven, let's go into God's dwelling place and bow down and worship before him. Verse eight, arise, O Lord, and enter your resting place, both you and the ark of your glorious strength. May your priest wear the robes of righteousness and let 
all your godly lovers sing for joy. Don't forsake your anointed king now, but honor your servant, David. Arise, Lord, and enter your rest. There's an old uh, Ron Cannoli song, I believe. It says, yes, you got it. Oh, the glory of your presence. We, your temple, give you reverence. So arise, Lord, to your rest and be blessed by our praise. You know, when I first heard this song, I thought the worship leader was singing the words wrong. I thought it should be arise, Lord, from your rest and get up, Lord, from your rest. Come fight for us. Come, come answer our prayers. Come do this for us. Come, come do this. And that's all legal, but there's a higher standard. There's a higher, higher calling that, Lord, when I come into your house, before I ask anything of you, I'm gonna approach you rightly. I'm gonna approach you saying, Lord, come and you rest. I wanna bless you with my thanksgiving. I wanna bless you with my praise. I wanna bless you with my love. And from that place of overflow, he leans over and says, now I'll do anything you ask in my name. That's the place he's inviting us to the moment we step in these doors, Lord, arise to your rest. It's not about me right now. It's about you. I know I've had a crazy week. All this is happening. I'm going to put that on the altar, and I'm going to say, Lord, come to your resting place. Worship is not for God. It's for us. We need to be transformed by his presence. And how rare it is to have a house, to find a people that gathers in the name of the Lord to ask him to arise and come to a resting place. How rare is that? all over the earth for a people group to say, Lord, come and rest here. Not, Lord, come and work for me, but Lord, come and rest here. This is worship with no strings attached. Jesus is, is not unto our breakthrough. Jesus is not unto uh, what we're wanting on the other end. He's not a bridge to a better life. He is everything. He is not even unto revival. If we're, revival doesn't come by just shouting revival all day. Revival is Jesus. He is revival, the person. If you get the person, you get revival. <laughs> That's who he is. But he even isn't unto revival because I don't want to ask Jesus to come just so I get revival. I want Jesus to come just so I can love him. That's worship in spirit and truth, worshiping with heart of purity. But when he comes, revival comes. When he comes, miracles break out. When he comes, everything else on my prayer list just comes forth. Second thing I want to share is living in extravagant worship. Living in a place of extravagant worship. We've heard the story before of uh, when King David was bringing the ark back. He was dancing before the Lord, making a fool out of himself. And it says that his wife, Michael or Michal, was looking at the presence, looking at the ark from a distance, from the window. In other words, she was looking at this extravagant act of worship from a distance. The window is meaning she's at a distance. Extravagant worship always looks foolish to those who are standing at a distance. And it said when she saw this, it, she despised him in her heart and criticized him. I think there's going to be a lot of critics the more extravagant we go in our worship. But he's worth it. He's worth it. She watched from a window. In other words, she watched from a distance. She despised him in her heart. And it says this random scripture. It says, then she was barren the rest of her life. 
What's the implication? Spiritual barrenness takes residence where there is a lack of sacrificial praise and worship. Where there was a lack of sacrificial praise and worship, barrenness inhabited. In other words, the enemy will always occupy territory where there's an absence of sacrifice. The moment, the moment sacrifice leaves the altar, the fire goes with it. Let's stay on the altar. I want to stay on the altar. <laughs> I want to do it. I want to live on the altar. Live a life of sacrifice. I heard Jeremy Riddle, uh, he was teaching at this church. I forget which one, but Jeremy was an, amazing, an incredible worship leader. He led with Stephanie Gretzinger, and he was talking about uh, back in the early days when Stephanie Gretzinger first came on the platform, on the stage, she offended a lot of people with her worship. She would kick her shoes off. She would be right here, like looking <laughs> at the screen. She was just, she plowed something that had never been seen before, really. Her worship was so extreme, so costly, so extravagant that it offended so many people. But Jeremy is saying now he travels the world 10 years later and he sees little Stephanie Gretzinger's all over the world because of what she paid for in worship, the price she paid for. And I want to suggest the price we pay for here at Dwell Church is not just for us, it's for the generations to come. It's for your children, your children's children. This vow right here, I want to make a dwelling place for the Lord. It's not about us, it's about decades, decades and years to come. You're not living just for yourself. You're living for a generation you may never know or may never see. The house of God is, it's not a selfishness. It's, it's for the nations. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Not just the, the 200 people in this room, but it's for all nations. So what we do when we go into this building every Sunday, yes, what happens here is for the however amount we are, but it's also this loudspeaker on the earth saying, come and dwell, come and dwell. Nations come, nations come. Sacrifice. Live on the altar. What was a sacrifice for me yesterday becomes convenience for me today. Does that make sense? So I'm going to use weightlifting. I don't lift weights, obviously. But <laughs> if I lift 30 pounds <laughs> over and over, obviously I don't. <laughs> That's going to be convenient for me pretty soon the more I do it. So I need to put some more stuff on the altar Yesterday's sacrifice becomes today's convenience, man. The only way, <laughs> it's funny, right? Yeah, I don't know how to do it, yeah. <laughs> I've heard this said before. The only way for you to keep what you have is to intensify what you're doing. The only way to keep what you have is to intensify what you're doing. Those who have, more will be given. But those who do not have, who are already in lack, more will be taken. This is the upside down kingdom. If you want more, throw more on the altar. If you listen to the great revivalists, they really had this one word that would come across all their messages. It was a word called surrender. Just surrender. Catherine Coleman, surrender. Smith Wigglesworth, surrender. It was just a resounding theme for the moves of God was surrender. Surrender the pain, surrender it all. So I want to 
keep going. I wanna read uh, out of Luke's chapter seven, if you could turn there. Luke chapter seven, this is a passage. It's really a twofold theme I wanna touch on. Number one, this shows the absolute supreme, most radical, costly act of worship ever in scripture. And number two, it's the only time in scripture where Jesus actually verbally communicates what he wants, what he longs for, and what he's looking for when he enters a house. So we must take note of this, of if, if Jesus is communicating what he wants when he comes into a house, we need to take great note on this and replicate it. So Luke chapter seven. Afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to come to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. I love this part. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with tears that fell from his face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with the, her costly perfume as an act of worship. And, uh, it goes on, Simon gets offended, like we just talked about, those who are at a distance will take offense to extravagant worship, it'll look foolish. And, uh, and drop down to verse 43, Jesus said, don't you see this woman kneeling here? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet, yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, notice it said the moment I came in, not the third song, but the moment I came in, <laughs> She has not stopped kissing my feet. Kisses speak of adoration. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all her many sins. This is why she has shown extravagant love, but those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me little. It said, I'm gonna reread this part. You didn't think about offering me water to dust, to wash the dust off my feet, yet she came into your house and washed my feet with her many tears. It was customary in ancient Jewish culture to offer your guest water for their feet, and it communicates to the guests, it communicates a message of humility, it communicates a message of reverence and the fear of the Lord. In other words, it's communicating this message to Jesus saying, I will not treat you as common here. I will not treat you as common. This wasn't even the woman's house and she didn't even bring a bucket of water, but she poured out the bucket of her heart, her tears. She says, you didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. These kisses speak of adoration 
intimacy and love. He said, from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. As I think Pastor David said this morning, we don't need to wait until the third worship song to go all in. We don't need to warm up in his presence. The moment we walk through these doors, we're here. We're kissing your feet. We're breaking our hearts. I want to say this as a family. If we are to go where he's calling us to go, we must live with this blueprint, guys. We must live. We, we must live burning throughout our weeks. Once a morning, Sunday worship on dwell at dwell will not do it. We need to be loving him in secret. We need to be loving him in our place of prayer. There's no warming up time here. We need to come burning. <laughs> this is... Uh, this is a mandate not for every house in America. I would not preach this message everywhere, but this is a mandate, I believe, for this house that we come in here burning. Yes, we have struggles, we have issues, we have all that. Bring all that too. <laughs> we need corporate worship. There's something that we, can, we taste in corporate worship that we can't taste in private. We need both the private and the corporate worship. Refuse to treat, to treat Jesus as common. We communicate to him what we value but by what we are willing to pay a price for. This is the standard. First Thessalonians, the standard for prayer in a believer's life, it says in First Thessalonians 5, is to pray unceasingly. I don't know anybody in, on this earth who has lived up to this, who has prayed unceasingly, but that doesn't change the standard. The standard is still there. This is it. He, he doesn't move the goalpost for anyone. The goalpost of revival stays the same. He wants everything. He wants everything. It's the standard. We've all heard the scripture, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. The uh, original Hebrew, they did not have commas in the original Hebrew. It was the English translators that put commas in here. So the English translators put the comma, when the enemy comes in like a, comes in like a flood, comma, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. I like to read it as, when the enemy comes in, comma, like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. The word says his voice is the sound of many waters. The enemy doesn't have the capability to come in like a flood because Jesus is waters. How do we raise up a standard? The flood has to come and the flood waters rise and rise. When the enemy comes in, pause, the Lord will raise up a, like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against him. That's the standard. Like a flood, Jesus. Like a flood. Like a flood. I want to just go to this last, last part, number three. I could uh, get keys here. Thanks, man. Number three, pillar of building the house of God is walking as a bride of purity. Walking as a bride of purity. We've had a lot of uh, the bride of Christ talk this year with the book of Revelation. It's been beautiful. It's been a common theme in our environment here the past six months or more than six months now. But uh, we are the bride. And uh, Larissa Miller, she's senior pastor at Upper Room. She shared this dream. Upper Room is kind of in the same vein, talking about the coming of the Lord. And senior pastor Larissa Miller had this dream. She had this dream that she was in a bridal store, trying on dresses, getting 
ready for her wedding. And all the dresses that they were bringing her, she would put them on and she said in the dream, they were very revealing. They were very tight on her skin and they had like slits up the leg and just not something that a pure bride would wear. It would bring her another dress and it was too much like the world. It was too worldly. And she, in the dream, she poked her head out and she said, Psst, do you have anything else to wear? I'm a bride. Brides aren't supposed to look sexy. They're supposed to look pure. They're supposed to look beautiful. I feel like for too long, we've, uh, the, the global beautiful bride has clothed herself with the gown of the world. But the Lord is power washing her. It's a beautiful power wash, power washing all the stuff that we've placed on her. Power washing, we, we can't dress like the world to attract the world. We need to dress like the bridegroom with him in mind. I only have to worry about being attractive to one woman on this earth, and that's Emily. She only has to worry about being attractive to one man on this earth, and that's me, and that makes it really easy and really simple. We only have one groom that we have to be attractive for, attracted for. That's all. It's simple. It's a simple gospel. It's that simple. We only have to look beautiful to one. We don't have to put on or placate ourselves with all these other stuff to attract the world. When he is lifted up, the people will come. He will draw all men unto him. He will bring. When he is lifted up, when he has a resting place, it'll be a magnet for the world. It will be a magnet for the nations. And I want to just put that out there prophetically that the nations are coming to this house. They are coming. They are coming. The oak tree is coming. We may have an acorn, but the oak tree of Dwell Church is growing. Dig in with us, dig in with us. Where we're going, it's beautiful. They're gonna write about it in history books about the glory of God that will mark the earth. You're a part of it. Dig in, it'll, it'll, come, like in a, it'll come over your businesses, it'll come over your places of work, it'll come over your schools, it'll come over classrooms, it'll come. Prepare for the move. He's power washing her. I want to read Proverbs 31. If we could turn there. Oh, Jesus. Proverbs 31 is, uh, Victoria Winters actually pointed this out to me. So thank you, Victoria. <laughs> it, it, we, we all have read Proverbs 31 as the ideal woman. We read it as an individual woman. We see teenage girls that post pictures of themselves and caption it with like, she's clothed with beauty and glory and all that. And it's like what, what guys, Christian guys dream of. I want the Proverbs 31 wife. When this was written, this was not merely written for an individual woman, but it was written as a prophetic statement of what the end time bride would look like. And I wanna go through that. This uh, poem, Psalms 31, it begins really in verse 10 and it ends, let me see. There's 22 verses in this poem. 
and there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And it was written as a Hebrew acrostic poem with every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If it was written in English, it would be A, and it would have the verse. B, it would have the verse. The implication was, the writer was trying to exhaust the entire Hebrew language to show how perfect and complete this bride is. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet speaks on this last day's bride. There's 22 chapters, prophesying to 22 chapters that would be written in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where we would get 22 eternal rewards. 22, complete wholeness. And we're entering the year 2022. I don't know what that means, but I just wanted to put that out there. The implications of, is that the perfections of this woman would exhaust the entire language. The subject is the perfect bride. This woman is both a picture of a virtuous wife and also an incredible allegory of the end time victorious bride of Jesus Christ. 22 verses, 22 rewards, and 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The last day's bride will be whole, complete, not lacking anything. She'll be complete, she'll be whole. I wanna start reading in verse 10. Who could ever find a wife like this one? She's a woman of strength and mighty valor. The original Hebrew translation for this word valor comes from a word called kail, and the meaning of this word cannot be contained in one English equivalent word. It is often used in connection with military prowess. In other words, this is a warring wife. This is a warring bride. This is not one that's complacent or lethargic. This is one that will war. And I wanna suggest that the last day's church will not be one who is asleep, complacent, or lethargic, but she will be one who wars not with the weapons of culture, but with the weapons of prayer, worship, fasting, and intercession. She is a mighty, vicious, warring bride. Kail, the warring wife of valor. She's full of wealth and wisdom. The price paid for her was greater than many jewels, speaking of the bridal price that Jesus paid, which was the sacred blood of the lamb, her conquering king, bridegroom. Her husband has entrusted his heart to her, for she brings him the rich spoils of victory. <laughs> All throughout her life, she brings him what is good and not evil. The virtuous last day's bride will not bring disgrace to the name of Jesus. And Jesus will not be ashamed to display her to the earth. He will not be ashamed to display his wife, his bride to the earth. Just as we're saying, here he is, look at him. In those days, he'll say, here she is, look at her. She'll be a beacon to the nations. Oh, Jesus, we say, do it. She searches out continually to possess that which is pure and righteous. This word purity speaks of wool and linen, which the curtains of the tabernacle were made out of, signifying God's righteousness. The virtuous bride of Christ in these last days will be seeking for only what is pure and righteous in the eyes of her bridegroom. She delights in the work of her hands. Look at your hands. How many fingers on your hands? Five. 
These hands of the bride speak of the fivefold ministries of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher that will work together in tandem in these last days, not in competition with each other. Her delight is to equip others and help those in need with her hands, the hands of the fivefold ministry. We are her hands. She gives out revelation truth to feed others. She is like a trading ship bringing divine supplies from the merchant. This word, uh, original translation, she brings food from another, the original translation is she brings food from another world. It doesn't mean just a faraway place, but she brings bread and food from another realm, another worldly realm. This last day's bride will bring heavenly manna from another realm to earth. And she gets this manna, it says, from the merchant. Who is the great merchant? The great merchant is Jesus who paid the ultimate price. He is the great merchant that we purchase oil from, we purchase bread from in our secret place through worship, prayer, and intercession. He is the great merchant that we bring this food from that world into this world. Even in the night season, she arises. The Hebrew word arise can also mean to rise up in power, speaking of the prophecy in Isaiah that says, arise and shine for your light has come. The bride of Christ will rise with the anointing to bless the people of God. She sets her heart upon a nation, takes it as her own. I'm gonna drop to verse 18. She tastes and experiences a better substance and her shining light will not be extinguished no matter how dark the night. Is it dark in the earth right now? Where darkness rises, light shines just brighter. And this speaks of her prayer life and references the 10 virgins whose lamps and light are filled with oil and intimacy that lights the flame of first love. The darker culture gets, the brighter the flame of the first love will be. It's our first love that will brighten this room in the dark days to come. No matter how dark it it gets, her light will not be extinguished. Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to help the needy and she lays hold of the wills of the government. Don't we need the Lord to lay hold of the wills of our government? This speaks of the wills mentioned in Ezekiel that implies the throne of God's government will sit on flaming wheels and the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God. Verse 21, she is not afraid of tribulation for all her household is covered in dual garments. These garments uh, are, are speaking of scarlet garments in the ancient Jewish culture, which implies the bride of Christ will be covered and clothed with the scarlet blood of Jesus. His blood is not just a one-time atonement, but it will be our daily garment we wear approaching his throne. Verse 22, her clothing is beautifully knit together. Speaking of the garment of the ministries of the body of Christ, which are woven and knit together by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the power of his will on the earth. Verse 25, bold power and glorious majesty are wrapped around her as she laughs with joy over the latter days. The bride of Christ in the last days will not cower in fear, 
but she will approach these days of darkness that lay ahead with joy, with hope, with courage and fearlessness as her trust is in the blessed hope of eternity and forever union with her bridegroom, King Jesus. It's him. Just wanna read this last verse. There are many valiant and noble ones, but you have ascended them all. These valiant and noble ones represent the church of previous generations who remain faithful in their pursuit of Jesus. But this final generation will be the bridal company of the lovers of God who do mighty exploits and miracles on the earth. Let's just stand and lift our hands. Jesus, we just say this morning, we will go with the cloud. We prophesy to our property and we just thank you that the cloud is there and we will be a prepared bride, Lord. We, we thank you, Lord. We will pay any price for, for what you've called us to do as a church, the mandate on this house. We lay our lives down. We keep our lives on the altar, Lord. We pay the price to be this perfected bride. Let's just take a few moments and let's just respond. Let's just begin speaking in the spirit. Scripture says that the spirit utters, utters words that we can't even utter on ourselves. So let the, the great wedding planner speak for you and prepare you. Let it rise all over this room. Lord, we pray for the day. We pray for the day. We pray for the day. The days of glory, Lord. We thank you for what we're tasting now, but we know there's more. We know there's more and we cry out for more. We pay the price for more. We thank you for the cloud to fill our midst. Lord, if, as Moses said, if you don't go with us, we don't even wanna go. So Lord, we just pray, be with us, Jesus. Be with us, Lord. Let us see you in new depths. Let us see you in new realms. We pray that you would be our dream. You would be our dream in these days to come. We love you. We love you. Let worship just begin to rise. Break your jar of oil on his feet. Break your jar of oil on his feet. I, as David made a vow, Lord, we make a vow right here on this Sunday morning. We make a vow with you saying we will not allow rest. We will not allow complacency to our hearts until we find a resting place for you, a place for you to dwell, Lord. We want you to dwell with us. It's not enough for visitation. We ache for habitation this morning. So Lord, you are our, our one thing. You are our cry. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.